0: still learning how to be that good Christian. My wife is still waiting for me to be perfected, ultimately. (laughs) But I have been transformed. Now, can I take you back to that moment when you first believed? Now, for some of you, it would have been a dramatic moment. For me, it was. For me, it seemed to others like a St. Paul, Paul on the Damascus Road kind of experience. Though it wasn't just that for me. It went back a long time because I'd been thinking and talking and and sort of even writing about God for years. Since I was a, a young child, really. So the thought process and the rebellions and the rebellions which were deliberately against God had been part of my psyche for all those years. So when I was suddenly converted, it seemed to everybody that a miracle had happened. But it was the end of a process, a journey when a rebel returns. I don't know when Peter, who wrote this epistle, first felt himself to be a Christian. When did any of those disciples first, would they, I guess it wasn't till after Pentecost. And then they wouldn't have called themselves Christians, they would have simply called themselves followers of the way. Jesus being the way the truth and the life. So, they didn't see them as themselves as Christian. They saw themselves as followers. And then later other people called them Christians. When did that first dawning happen? You just can't see. Was it when he said, you are Christ, the son of the living God? Was it on the beach when Jesus recommissioned him after he would denied Jesus three times? Was it on the day of Pentecost when the tongue of flame was apparently hanging over his head? When was it? We don't know. But when was it with you? Can you remember that first glow of faith when actually you wanted to run out the front door and tell your friends, Jesus has done something You'll never believe, and he's done it for me. Now, if that has never happened to you, if Jesus has never meant that to you, because the problem with with sort of standing in front of Christians, a church, even church membership, means that here we are, all these people, and we all go to church, but we all know in here that not everybody who goes to church everywhere necessarily can say, wow, what Jesus has done for me. But we're an evangelical church. But then, not always in an evangelical church can it always be said that everybody sitting down can say, oh, what Jesus Christ has done for me. I'm just so grateful. So I'm asking you to remember back to that first love, which time and family sometimes and work pressure and difficulty and illness just crushes till that first glow fades away. Can you, if anybody asked you, say, Oh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, out of his great mercy, had caused me to be regenerated, renewed, born again, into a living faith, a living hope. Can you say that? And I'm assuming that you can, but I don't know. And if you can't and you want to talk about it afterwards, I will have no greater pleasure than talking to you, listening to you, praying with you, searching it through with you. Believe me. But if you can say that, Where does that now rest in your life? Because Peter writing these words is writing them 30 years, at least, I guess, after Pentecost. In fact, some people, and I'm about to quote from William Barclay here, um, some people would say that this was written after the first Roman persecution. Now, I said something different the other week. William Barclay thinks differently from me. This morning I'm going to quote from William Barclay, okay? That on the 19th of July, in the year 64 AD, a great fire went through Rome. It was known by the populace that Nero had this great desire to build great things. And it was reckoned by the population Probably Nero himself started the fire because he wanted to get rid of all this old stuff and build his grand new designs, you know, the uh, the monument to the great Nero. And it didn't matter what he did; he couldn't get rid of the general view that it was he who'd started the fire. So William Barclay quotes. Tacitus, the Roman historian who tells this story in his annals. Neither human assistance in the shape of imperial gifts nor attempts to appease the gods could remove the sinister report that the fire was due to Nero's own orders. Remember this is the Roman historian, but back along saying And so in the hope of dissipating the rumour, he falsely diverted the charge onto a set of people to whom the vulgar gave the name of Christians and who were detested for the abominations they perpetrated. Let me just stop there. It was rumoured that the Christians, Christians, um, you know the cruel, stupid ideas that go through public heads sometimes. The Christians were cannibals. And the reason for this was when they took the Lord's Supper together, it was a supper which was precious to the body of the church. And so they held this in private enclave. It wasn't a public service. But the words of the service got out that they were eating flesh and drinking blood. And so the wild rumour spread amongst some that these people were really barbarians and cannibals. So, Nero falsely diverted the charge onto a set of people to whom the vulgar gave the name of Christians and who were detested for the abominations they perpetrated The founder of the sect, one Christus by name, had been executed by Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius and the dangerous superstition, though put down for a moment, broke out again, not only in Judea, the original home of the pest, but even in Rome, where everything shameful and horrible collects and is practiced. William Barclay comments, Clearly Tacitus had no doubt that the Christians were not to blame for the fire and that Nero was simply choosing them to be scapegoats for his own crime. In any event, the blame for the fire was attached to the Christians and a savage outbreak of persecution occurred in Rome. And it wasn't simply persecution by legal means. The Roman historian Tacitus says a huge multitude of Christians perished in the most sadistic ways. Nero rolled the Christians in pitch, set light to them, and used them as living torches to light his gardens. Remember, this is Tacitus saying this. Nero sewed them up in the skins of wild animals and set his hunting dogs on them to tear them from limb to limb while they were still alive. Tacitus writes, Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burned, to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle, and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserve extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion. For it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty, that they were being destroyed. That was in the year 64, Rome. It's reckoned by many that this is written round about two or three years later. And again, contrary to what I believed, I thought this was written in bad Greek. It's actually written in brilliant Greek. Beautiful Greek, so the experts write. Which is not at all the Greek of of, um, a Galilean fisherman. But at the end he says, I have written to you Sylvanus, who was an educated man. And I can imagine him saying, right, you listen to me. This is what I want to say. You've got to put it down in proper Greek, right? Right then, let's go. So we have this beautiful letter, which is full of compassion and pastoral energy and concern and urgency for the people he's writing to. Because Around the provinces, the Roman provinces, what took place in Rome is becoming known. The news has spread. And of course, for those who in different places may be Christian opponents, they now realise, they have opponents of Christians, they now realise they've got a really good hold, hang on how to deal with these Christians. And depending on the Roman, the, 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 the ruler in any particular Roman province, the Jews or other people who had some thing against the local Christians, um, like the local Christians say there is no God so I can't sell my idols anymore. Let's go t- to the official and tell him about these Christians because look what Nero's done to them. We can have these away. And so there were increasingly th- increasing threat of persecution in different places. And it's with this in mind and to encourage the Christians to endure to the end that Peter is writing with deep compassion and feeling probably from Rome itself and not long after if Fox's book of martyrs is correct. He himself was martyred there being crucified upside down because he felt he was not worthy to be crucified upright as his master was. So Recognizing that many of his readers are going to be suffering for the faith which they all hold. He begins by simply blessing God. And just reminding them what their actual status in Christ really is. And my guess is that you and I forget this at times too. In a very busy world that doesn't give us time to think or to stop to pray. And even when we get home, there's a the pressure of children or work which we bring home. Or we've got to go out to some school meeting or something. In all this pressure, when do we stop and remember and say, Blessed be the Lord. The God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is what Peter is saying. He's saying, look, your faith. Now, I don't understand this, but when you're a Christian and you look back on how you became a Christian, it makes sense. Your salvation was destined by God, you're chosen. You, Christian, have been chosen and destined by God to be sanctified by His Spirit and for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by which you had the forgiveness of your sins, reconciliation with God, which covers you for all that you've done that is past and is still relevant and effective for all the mistakes you make today and all that you will do next week until the day we see Jesus Christ. Because Christ died once for all. Which doesn't give me or you an excuse to sin. It's saying that Christ has effectively ransomed you from this world for God. God has done it. God has done it. You get it? I know you get it, but do you get it? God has done it. For sprinkling with the blood of Jesus and for obedience. Now obedience arises out of this extraordinary sense of what God has done for us. I got up this morning and I wasn't looking forward to preaching. I shouldn't be thinking of myself. But preachers do. I so thought I'm on a hiding to nothing here. Because I'm telling people everything they know. And so they won't want to hear because they just say we know it. But perhaps I was really speaking of myself. Lord, from before the foundation of the earth, Christ was crucified for you and me in the mind and the heart of God and he has called you and by the death of Jesus and the influence of his spirit he has transformed you, hasn't he? he's made you in so many ways unrecognisable to the person you were before you first followed the way first entrusted yourself to him What a different person you are. What different attitudes you've learned to adopt, you see. What different values you've seen in the world around you, simply because now you see in the world around you God everywhere, and grace everywhere, because you experience it in yourself. This transformation... You are being changed from one degree of glory to another, as Paul puts it. You are going through this spiritual transition, this metamorphosis. You are being changed increasingly into the likeness of Jesus. If you're following in His way. And even if you've forgotten to follow in His way, but you first believed, You still belong to Jesus. And he has still died for you. And he still wants grace and peace to be multiplied to you. And you're still his. And he's so... Well, to die for us, you must be passionate about someone, mustn't you? To die for someone, you must be passionate about them. So he's still passionate about you even if you've been backsliding for 15 years or three days. Go back to when you first believed because God hasn't changed his heart over you. Isn't that wonderful? It's by his great mercy, because none of us deserve it, do we? That we're born in you, but to a living hope. And this is absolutely crucial to what Peter is wants to say to these people who he suspects may many of them be suffering persecution hurt and pain but we have a living hope now then I might say I hope it's sunny tomorrow but I'm, that's hardly a living hope our living hope is The God who raised Jesus from the dead. Where is heaven? My granddaughter asked me. I don't know, I said. It's a mystery. Lots of people say it's up there. But you and I know there's just lots of stars up there. So where is heaven? Where is Jesus located with God the Father? I don't know but I do know that he is located with God the Father because he was raised from the dead. And where Jesus is, we have been promised, he died and was raised to bring us to God. He is with us now. We're never absent from his presence. But one day, when we die, whether we're murdered or persecuted or fall off a tall building or die of old age or whatever we do, when this last breath disappears from us because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ and the faith we still have in him, we know that when that happens, we shall be with Christ, with God, wherever that is. But in a way of understanding, which is beyond just physical understanding, beyond just material, scientific proof, because God raised Jesus from the dead. And in your heart, you believe that. But if in your heart you don't believe that, let me ask you what hope you have. If you don't believe God raised you from the dead, what hope do you have that he ever forgave you from your sins? For you who in here know he has forgiven you, know it because God raised him from the dead. Now, to an unbeliever, that's absurd. There's many absurd things in religions. Um, if you're not a believer, following Muhammad, you will find it obs- absurd that he says that a white animal, a bit bigger than a donkey, a bit smaller than an ass, took him overnight from Arabia to Jerusalem where he offered up prayers, and then returned in the night. You will find that absurd, because you don't—you're not a believer. And if you're not a not a Hindu or a Sikh, you will find it absolutely absurd that a uh, one goddess makes a son out of mud, that her husband comes home and knocks his head off because he thinks he's a, he's a stranger doing something with his wife, and when his wife, the goddess, cries. That was my son. You've just knocked their head off. The main god says to his warriors, go out, find the first sleeping person you can in the, in the north, get his head, and we'll stick it on this dead boy. And so they have an elephant god called Ganesh. Now, if you're not a Hindu or a Sikh, that's absurd. But if you're not a Christian, it's absurd that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. It's absurd that God was in Christ the son of God reconciling the world to himself but something about the way that testimony has been told us and something about the way we've heard it and tested it and opened our hearts to God the spirit has touched us and we say that happened. You did that, Lord. He's risen. And Peter at the end of his letter says that he was witness of those sufferings and that resurrection. And he says to us, you, though you haven't seen him, you believe in him and you exult with unutterable joy, inexpressibly because something happened with us spiritually when God touched our lives that we just know God has raised Jesus from the dead and because Jesus is raised from the dead we have within us this hope that death is not the end and we will be held in Christ and brought to God and we will know him even as we have been known wherever and however that is but we will know it and experience it in the same way that we know and experience the presence of Christ with us now, through his spirit so Peter is saying, you know this things. this is who you are this is your hope it's not a vain hope, it's what you hold in here so now go out and be Christians but if they do the worst they can do to you, you know it's not Because even Christ himself suffered because of the joy that was set before him. So Peter is going to go on, and our Peter will be speaking about this probably next week or the week after, speaking about encouraging us to live lives of holiness. We live lives of holiness because of what God has already done for us. What we know in here he's done for us. It's it's grateful obedience, not save me obedience. Do you understand? It's we're so grateful. We love you. We're going to follow your way. That's kind of obedience. But that kind of obedience will get us into trouble in some places. For one person it may be in a school. Somewhere else it may be in a family somewhere else it may be a pastor in a church you know it will get us into trouble but we have a living hope because Christ is living and he is our hope and you have that it's yours by his great mercy we have been born in you to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now I didn't get a lot of money, but when I reached a certain age, my dad had put aside some money for me. It was kept in the bank for me, I think. When I reached that certain age, it was released to me. To use or squander as I chose, I think I probably squandered. But your living hope provides you with an inheritance which is undefiled, unfading, and is kept in heaven for you. It's there. You don't have to earn it. Christ has earned it through his death for you. Christ has purchased it for you. It's an inheritance which belongs to you. It's kept for you. And then it goes on to say, it's kept for you, for you who by God's power are being guarded by faith for this ultimate salvation, this fulfilment of it. Which is ready to be revealed. Your eternal future is certified, testified to, by the blood of Jesus and God raising him from the dead. I don't understand that glory. But I did tell you the other week, didn't I, about a man called Oscar Smart, who was a minister when I was a new Christian and it was a Saturday, his funeral and I went to the funeral um, having gone out shopping and then I thought, oh, that old bloke that old geezer's been, they've got a funeral today i go and see what it's like the only funerals I could remember were door affairs from before I was a Christian so I went to this funeral <clears throat> and they were talking about this man, Oscar Smart and his faith and as I sat in the back of a packed church up in the top, to me, right-hand corner of the church, there appeared something which was just glory. I'd never seen it since. had never thought of it before. But I just saw something just up there of glory. And I just knew as I sat there, I said, this old geezer, Oscar Smart, that's what he's enjoying. That's what it's all about. When it all comes to an end, he's with Jesus. And uh, that is the hope to sustain us. Not just what we have, but we have to look forward to. When you're going through it, says Peter, let that hope, that living hope, that that glory. Let it sustain you. Because it's yours already. And it's ready to be revealed in the last day. And I guess last day comes differently for different people. I guess for me it will be the day I die. If, I, if we live till Jesus comes again, I guess it would be then. <laughs> in this All this stuff you rejoice, so now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials. And if you do so, just understand that the genuineness of your faith is being tested. Gold is tested through fire. And Peter says, your faith is being tested through the trials you face. But it's a faith which comes out shining brighter and brighter and stronger and stronger as a result, because of that glory which awaits us in Jesus Christ. I'm just going to stop and just ask you to reflect. Whether or not you could do it when you came into the church, can you go out of the church saying, blessed God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of what he's done for you. And now I'm going to play one more bit of music, okay? Quite different from the last one. I really love this one. It gets me giggling, actually. I don't know whether I'll stand before you and do it, but it just gets me laughing with joy. It's, um, it's the Reverend James Cleveland, now dead. If you like it, you can get this one, get you. Sing this song of the other day.